Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve others sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. Hey, good morning. That sounded a little gimmicky. Hi, good morning. My name's Elliot. Uh, so I am uh, the Saturday night pastor in student ministry, so it's good to be with you. Uh, if you're online, welcome. Uh, we're glad that you guys join every week. Hey, uh, before we go any further, I want to just thank someone. I don't know if he's in the room. He's an introvert, so 99% chance he's not. Um, in this season, we've been uh, looking for our new worship leader, new worship pastor. We're really excited. Next week, we've got Maddie Baker. So many of you uh, saw her the weekend she was here. Yeah, we're stoked for her. So, um, so, all right, well, some claps, there we go. We're like, what do we do? It's okay, it's not about her, it's not about her. So. Um, but in that time being, uh, one of our own Waterstoners, Chipper Lloyd, has uh, really, yeah, there we go, has really blessed our church. All right, a lot of false starts. You know what? I'll tell you when to clap, okay? Let's do that. So, um, but Chipper has uh, really led with so much, uh, not just sincerity, but also excellence, uh, which is really important in the worship world because it can be a distraction without that. So, um, but uh, Chipper and his wife, Carly, uh, they are really talented. I'm not just saying that. And they got a lot of different offers from different churches. And really, this is where Chipper started out. And it's, uh, it's a right move for him to kind of explore what God's got for him out there. There's an amazing church in Southern California named Rock Harbor. Not just because it's big, but because they're doing excellent ministry. And, um, and so uh, starting uh, this week, actually, Chipper and Carly are going to be going to Rock Harbor. He's going to be on staff with them. So we genuinely just want to pause. You are in the room, so ha-ha. And there's people on both sides that so you can't get up now. So can we just say thank you to Chipper and to Carly? Seriously? Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for letting us do that. Sorry for doing that as well. But yeah, thank you, Chipper. So cool. Hey, well, we are starting a new series, and it is on uh, the topic of faith and doubt. And um, right now, I'm going to introduce some topics, because over the next couple weeks, we're going to dive deep into uh, this series. And I want to make sure we're all on the same page before we move forward. Uh, but before I do that, I want to give a bit of an idea of the landscape of the church right now and some history. Um, church uh, statisticians and theologians have noted that over the last 40 years, the process of those growing up in the church and engaging or wrestling with their faith has changed fairly drastically. So, um, you know, maybe 30 years ago, there was uh, high schoolers who grew up in the church and the acceptance, right or wrong, probably wrong, was that they'd go off to college and kind of like their faith was a boomerang, they'd chuck it into a field, it'd be gone for a while, and then once they had kids, they realized, holy smokes, I don't know what to do with this child and I don't want it to keep like drawing with crayons on the wall, so I'll go to church. So that boomerang comes back, they come back to church, and not so much church, but their faith, and actually engaging that. But what we're seeing now is more that rather than a boomerang thrown in a field, it's a lot more like a rock thrown into the woods. Is that there's a generation, millennials and Gen Z, but really any generation, that is realizing that I would rather have no beliefs than wrong beliefs. And based off my experience, the beliefs I was handed, however uncomplex or nuanced, they don't seem to match up. Uh, for instance, 64% of 
uh, non-believing Gen Z. So real quick, Gen Z is not um, the elementary school anymore. It's like your college students, okay? Millennials are like stuck in parent-teacher conferences and getting no sleep at night because of a child. There's a story behind that. But Gen Z, those are actually our college students. 64% of non-Christian Gen Z would say that the church has no relevance to them. That's fair if you're not a Christian. But 63% of Christian Gen Z would actually say that the church is not the place that they meet God. We have got to pause as we look at the topic of faith and doubt and look in the mirror and be honest about one, and most importantly, who God is and what he invites us to, and therefore every generation to as well. But also what we can do to create a space where we allow and encourage and affirm the wrestling of faith that happens. So let's, let's uh, define some terms. And there'll be a good amount of this, so hold on tight, strap in. So first, I wanted to find the word doubt as we're using it, because um, it has different connotations depending on what circles you're in. We are defining doubt in this series as a passive, unintentional, but natural process of questioning your beliefs. So that's probably not super controversial. The idea, though, is that doubt is not always chosen. In fact, oftentimes it's not. It just sort of happens. It's, you have moments where you realize, I don't know if I believe that or accept it. The next one is deconstruction, and this one is a little more of a buzzword right now in the church and outside of the church. Deconstruction, we're defining like this. I'll put it up there for us to see. Deconstruction is the process of taking apart and examining an idea, tradition, practice, or belief to determine its truthfulness, usefulness, and impact, sometimes to the point of no longer identifying as a Christian. So to be clear, deconstruction is in and of itself a fairly neutral thing. And I would say it's actually an important part of our faith. Deconstruction is an important part of the Christian faith and journey. But it's neutral in the sense that what it produces is not determined by the fact that you're deconstructing. In your sort of house of theology, so to speak, your house of beliefs about God, there are things that you might have acquired along the way that you will pull off the shelf at some point and dust off and ask, do I actually believe this? That's essentially what deconstruction is. It's an important part. In fact, if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, I hope at some point you have gone through the process of deconstruction in small ways or in large. And then here's the last one. So doubt, deconstruction, and then demolition. Some of us have misunderstood or become frustrated as our teenagers or our college students or our spouses or our um, parents or whoever it might be have decided that they're deconstructing, but we have misunderstood that as a demolition of faith. Demolition in the Christian walk is far less about um, trying to get something that's more true and good and beautiful. It's not asking the question, um, what does God want me to do or what is actually central to the Christian faith? A lot of times it's motivated from, albeit legitimate, uh, wounds or questions or experiences, but often frustration with the goal that doesn't result in reconstructing something. So doubt, deconstruction, and reconstruction. Um, there's then the, so we've we got t terms out there. We're good. Everyone thumbs up. Okay. Um, I got one thumbs up. That's cool. Hundreds of people, one thumbs up. I'll take it. It's actually a pretty good ratio for me, to be honest. Um, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, demolition, right? Uh, anyone watch HGTV? 
be honest. Yeah, we do. All right, come on, praise God. So uh, I saw a tweet uh, recently that said, uh, me at 16, why the heck do my parents watch so much HGTV? Me at 26, dang, that backsplash really does make the countertops pop. It's like very true, right? It's like my experience right now. Um, But when you watch HGTV, you watch, you know, Property Brothers or um, Chip and Joe, RIP, they went off and did their own thing. There's always demo day, right? It's a day where they come in and Chip and Joe, they take their like 17 kids that just seem to throw chickens around by the neck and they're like, demo day! And they just start destroying things and it's fun for the kids and you break chandeliers and property brothers like get out uh, gasoline canisters and just start walking around the house pouring it and then one of them, because you never know who's who, flips the lighter and throws it behind and it's Independence Day background of like everything blows up. That's what they describe or, or kind of make Demo Day look like at times, in my opinion, because it's interesting. But it's not actually how you deconstruct something. Anyone who is familiar with renovating uh, any part of their house, even just replacing your kitchen sink with an updated faucet and, and sink, you know that you're careful about what you're deconstructing. Because as you're taking out cabinets, the drywall behind it might not just work, it might actually be really good. Maybe you invested in nice drywall. I don't know if that's a thing. But we want to be cautious when we're deconstructing our faith. Because rather than throwing it all out and just sledgehammering it, there are parts of our faith, likely, that are actually really good and true to the gospel. In fact, there's likely parts that are beautiful and work well and are helpful for living in this world. So there's a difference between demolition and deconstruction, and we as a church have to be able to distinguish for ourselves, for our family and friends, for the next generation and the ones ahead of us. So the process of faith, it starts with construction. Um, Many of us are familiar with this, If you became a Christian earlier on in life, this was probably extremely passive. If you became a Christian later in life, that's awesome. You probably had a little more say and awareness in that process. But construction is the first of three steps where we essentially just accept what's given to us. We receive the things that we're told. Uh, If if you're a parent and a, a child does something, like slaps a brother, and you say, don't slap your brother, Your child doesn't say, what's the utilitarian ethic behind that? Like, what does it actually produce? Because it's pain for him, but it's pleasure for me. Your child is in the season of construction of their beliefs on the world. And they just accept that that is wrong. That's kind of a joke for the record. But the idea is true. It's the same with language. You just accept certain things. There is a phase in all of our faiths, if you're a Christian, where you and I tend to just accept what's handed to us. But here's the problem with that, is that not everything that's handed to us is true. And not everything that we were told is good or beautiful. It doesn't work in all settings if it's the true gospel. So what does that mean about it? And that's all of a sudden where our experience and our beliefs do not line up. And we shouldn't be threatened by this. We should acknowledge it. It's an important part of growing in your faith. For some of us, it's really significant ways. We sing songs. There's a worship song that makes me cringe, and I'm pretty sure a whole 
staff as well, it says, you make all things work together for my good. Well, you can sing that in your construction phase, but that's a really poor interpretation of Romans 8, 28. That's super centered on you as an individual. Yeah, God is good and he has a good plan. But what happens when there's a diagnosis to you or a family member? See, here the construction phase where we just were spoon-fed and accepted it, which is, by the way, a good and important phase, but can come with some problematic beliefs, all of a sudden it hits the, a wall. And we realize that, that that phase carried with it things that might not be true. It's the same for some of us as we... We read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and you might have uh, grown up in a faith or tradition, and you might still be in it, which is all right, too. That has a very literal reading of those verses. Absolutely okay. We have people in all different places with that at Waterstone. But then you all of a sudden take a Bio 101 class, and you feel like you have to choose between your faith, your belief, and your experience. And there are less threatening things that are less central to the faith, like alcohol or entertainment. You grow up knowing that this is what it means to be a Christian in that construction phase. But the deconstruction comes the moment you realize, I know solid believers who love Jesus and are making a big impact in their faith. And they didn't believe that that was gospel truth. So what do we do? And that's the moment that deconstruction enters. And the the most mature believers that I know are the ones who can sit with some of the experiences and beliefs that don't line up and say, I'm okay with that because of my experiences with God. I'm not going to allow what I don't know to stop me from believing what I do know. But let me say this in case many of you or some of you are not in that place. And actually, some of the experiences that you've had are too big to say, I'm not going to allow what I don't know to keep me from believing what I do know. That's okay. That's the season of deconstruction. And I believe God invites us into it so that we can come out with a faith that is more nuanced, more complex, because our world is too. That is bigger than our brains, like our God is, but truer and more beautiful as well. But as a church, for our own sake and for the sake of others, we have to be careful not to miss diagnose or understand deconstruction. I went this, uh, this last month, our students went to Scotland to work with youth festivals, a lot of fun for all of you who, who um, supported us in any way with prayer or, or even helping fund students. Thank you for that. Um, but while we were there, my wife and I, we got to go to St. Andrew's Cathedral in Scotland. This is what it looks like. And um, we're totally nerds, so we were kind of like geeking out on this stuff. Um, and uh, we were going around reading all these, like, you know, descriptions of whatever you're standing in. And, um, and all of a sudden I realized that, that St. Andrew's Cathedral, I thought it, it was in this shape because of where it's positioned. It's right on the coast of Scotland, right? The, uh, the east coast. And I thought to myself, oh, it must just be wind and rain and stuff like that. Because it's like hundreds and hundreds of years old. And then as I kept reading, I realized that, no, 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 no. This was constructed with stones hundreds of years ago, but it was actually broken down during the Scottish Reformation. In other words, when Protestants said, hey, the Catholic Church doesn't necessarily have it all right, in our opinion, and then they broke apart the cathedral. And I've got, you know, I'm, I'm a Protestant pastor, right? So I've got to at some point be like, this is the stream that I'm in. 
So as I realized that the people that I, you know, I'm part of lineage-wise just broke down this massive, beautiful cathedral during the Reformation, I just started to sink deeper into my little raincoat because apparently it only rains in Scotland. Like seriously, the Noah's Ark, I think, might have happened there. And as I was walking around, my wife and I started engaging this um, sort of tour guide that works there and explains stuff. And it was interesting. She said, I, I shared with her my like, my like, I don't know, Protestant guilt. Can I say that without anyone cringing? Okay, so I was like, oh man, you know, I'm Protestant pastor. It's crazy to think. And she said, that's not what happened. She said, you see, when the Catholic Church was no longer the dominant religion here in Scotland, the cathedral was no longer a useful or needed construction. In other words, prior to that, there was one church with one central location that everybody went to, and it was the cathedral. But as time went on, people moved out of the town, and monastic movements moved in, and things changed. And there's not very many trees in Scotland. So stones are really, really hard to come by and important to build. So very intentionally, these believers took apart the stones from St. Andrew's Cathedral, and they built things like homes and walls and gardens and breweries. And what I realized is I had misunderstood their process of literal deconstruction as demolition. And as a result, assumed that the intentions weren't good and that it was something that I should be embarrassed about. The stakes are too high for us as the church to misunderstand our community, our family, and our own doubt and wrestling with our faith. All right. So if you're getting nervous because I haven't talked about the Bible, here it comes, all right? I will say this. At Waterstone, we are hesitant to talk about, to do topical series. And the reason is because it's really easy when you do a topical series to just really reflect back what the preaching team thinks about whatever the topic is. So we, we're about to jump into Acts after this three-week series, this being the first week, because we believe it's a lot more beneficial for you. If we say that connecting with God is largely reading the Bible, then we want you to know how to read the Bible, and we want to study the Bible. But there are times when, pastorally, there are needs that come up for a demographic or for the church as a whole that are helpful to instruct and lead people through. An example I think about is uh, doing student ministry for years is dating. The Bible was written to every context and every time in history, which means that for us in a world of online dating apps, the Bible doesn't speak much to. It has principles about how to navigate that that are really helpful. But you're not going to find a passage that talks about how to use Tinder. Thank you, one person. But what that means then is that we as Christians— We have to look at passages and say, okay, even if we're being intellectually honest, that this isn't necessarily the intent of the passage. It speaks to the issue that we are wrestling with. So we're going to do that today. Um, I will say we're in good company. Scripture is really clear from uh, Job and Jacob wrestling with God to Daniel in the Psalms and Thomas doubting and a myriad of other examples of people wrestling with their faith. But the passage we're going to look at is one in which Jesus actually coaches his disciples, tells them about the spiritual journey. And in that, we learn a lot that we can apply to our spiritual journey and process with doubt and faith. All right. So here we go. John 15, 1 through 3. 
Amber read it before, but that first sentence, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Jesus has just had six I am statements prior to this moment. And uh, seven is like a really important number in the Bible. We've said this before. They don't have highlighters or bold or italicized or underlined, can't copy and paste. So they use repetition and they use numbers. So this is the seventh and the last time in the book of John that Jesus says, I am. And he specifically says, I am the true vine. And then the first time that he actually equates himself or um, puts him in the same context, puts his personhood in the same context as God the Father. He's setting up for you and I early on in this passage identity. And what he's saying is as he starts to talk about pruning, a process of sanctification, which I believe wrestling with our faith and even deconstructing and reconstructing is a critical part of. Jesus says that there's an authority, though, that I have and the Father has. In other words, there's almost a line drawn in the sand that says, God is God and you and I are not. And this is a big difference between Christian deconstruction and then deconstruction outside of that is that God invites us into and under his authority. I know a lot of my friends who are deconstructing, people I've gone to seminary with and sat in classes, and oftentimes their deconstruction, not always, but often it seems to happen outside of who God is and what he has said. And and, uh, there's a couple ways that I've seen this played out is that the faith that they end up with is more indicative of their personal preferences and hobby horses than what I hear in Scripture. The friends of mine who have deconstructed under God's authority, I would say, to say, God, you're the vine. I want to stay connected to you. And you're the gardener. I want you to be the one that helps me navigate this. And I don't even know what that means. And sometimes I don't like what I believe about you. Those friends, those people, those peers, those congregants, whatever it might be, they don't have a view of God they're comfortable with. They disagree with some of the things they believe are true about the Christian faith. There's mystery and unknown areas in their faith. Does that make sense? In other words, they have a belief that doesn't sit fully right with them. I would say that if you have a belief or a God that you understand and that you agree with and that you always like, then you want to probably question whether or not you're deconstructing or analyzing your beliefs truly under the authority of God and His Word. And by the way, you have absolute freedom to not do that. But if you want to stay plugged into the vine, if you want to say, God, I believe you're true, but I don't always actually believe you're good. Well, then we want to do that under the authority of God. Passage keeps going, and it says this. uh, Remain in me, verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So Jesus is saying, in your spiritual journey, there's an authority that I have. If you want to be part of this, you're invited into this. But there's also something that you receive from me in that. That Jesus says, I am the one that gives life. 
I am the one that empowers you to bear fruit. Uh, Look back at verse 1, if you would. Let's go back to that. Jesus says here, I am the true vine. You and I miss that, and we think it's kind of, I would think, it's kind of like Jesus saying, like, I'm the real deal. And in a sense, he's saying that. But with with a historical context, that's really helpful. See, for the Jews... The idea of the vine was a, a symbolic of their identity corporately. So in other words, um, it was almost like the stars and stripes for us. It like means that we're Americans, if you're here and you're American. For them, it was the vine. It's the Old Testament where you have in the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, um, where they talk about the vine as representing Israel, except in that context, it's always judgment for a lack of fruit. In fact, even in the temple, if you were to walk in Herod, trying to please the Israelites or the Jews at the time of Israel, put up this big vine that's described in extra-biblical texts as gold and ornate, and it's huge. And it symbolized the Israelite people, the Jewish people, Israel. And Jesus is saying, hey, I get that you tried to get what was true and bear fruit, but it didn't work. And now I am the real deal. In other words, stay connected to me. There's a famous uh, preacher named Beth Moore, who I I love. And she said before that um, being a Christian doesn't mean that you don't go through hard times. In fact, you go through just as many, if not more, difficult times from being a Christian. It means that you go through it with a God who's present with you. Jesus is saying, I am a source of life in all seasons. But here's the second one. He's also saying, I'm the connective tissue between you and every other Christian. So when we are going through the pruning process and wrestling with our faith, that you and I, we don't just do it in an elevator by ourselves with God. Like get in an elevator, rip off the panel, cut every wire you see, and just sit down and say, all right, God, let's talk. What it means is that we do it as part of the church, the local church, the global church, and the universal church throughout time and space. So that the gospel that you believe must be true today as it is tomorrow for a Palestinian Christian as it was a thousand years ago for a Coptic Christian in northern Africa. Let me explain even more why I think this is important. I'm about to use a word that I'm going to pretend I knew before I wrote this sermon. There's something called nosocomial, dang it, there's something called nosocomial infections, okay? I just read about this. Um, Nosocomial infection is this. It means you go to the hospital because something's wrong with you. So um, you broke an arm. It's like, oh man, fell out of a tree trying to save my neighbor's cat, yada, yada, yada. Cool. So I broke my arm. So I go to hospital. And when I get to the hospital, they fix my arm. They do whatever they do. It's like, they put it in a little wrap. And then I leave the hospital. But lo and behold, I got the common cold or the flu or um, strep throat at the hospital. Well, so in the medical world, they call that a nosocomial. Man, I should have worked on this before, huh? They call that a nosocomial infection. It means that you went to a place that was intended to help you become healthier and more whole. And as a corollary of being there, you receive some sort of infection. This is important at this point because for us, during this phase of construction— 
You and I have likely grown up in churches and in church communities, Christian communities, that have instilled things inside of us, some of which, and hopefully many of which, are true and good, but oftentimes many of which are not true. And they don't hold water outside of that specific context or culture. They're a result of your family of origin or of your church or of your church's tradition. And Jesus connects us as this connective tissue with the eternal church, Christians that lived thousands of years before and will live thousands of years from now. And we get to process our faith and ask, what are the things that I inherited that aren't true? You have likely seen some of these pop up in your own life. And one of the fastest ways is when your experience does not align with something that was handed to you early in life, likely during the construction phase. Jesus says you can grow and challenge your faith in community, and as a result, you can figure out what's what. What's true and beautiful, what was handed to you as a result of culture or a time, but not necessarily gospel. But I think there's one other thing for us to get about the church in here. What's interesting is uh, Jesus doesn't define whether you're part of the vine by what you believe. It's by whether you bear fruit. I want to say it again. You and I, according to this illustration, we've got to read the whole Bible as a whole. We can't just say, well, this is the only thing that makes you a Christian. But it is based off your fruit in this passage, not your beliefs. So what sort of fruit do we bear? What sort of fruit are we as a church? Are we a place that affirms wrestling, that's patient with the deconstructing, that engages the demolishing because we see behind the facade of an intellectual sledgehammer? Jesus invites us in the scriptures to question the Psalms, the largest book by quantity of the Bible, of pages and passages and words asks two questions. Are you there, God, and are you good? Are we a church that allows others to ask that too? That's why we do Alpha. That's why we have a program for, stu- for, for students for Alpha Youth or for everyone else for Alpha to show up and ask honest questions and say, I don't believe, but I'm willing to discuss. And Alpha is not for everyone. So if you want to go deep in your faith, like Alpha starts this Tuesday, right? 6.30. I'm not trying to plug it, but it is a real thing. I mean, this is, this is why we do it. If you want to go deeper in your faith, don't come to Alpha. If you're like, I want, I want a Bible study. That's not what it is. Alpha's at, at a brewery that hopefully is an easy space for people to engage and have honest conversations. I'll be there. So now you can't say you don't know anyone. Maybe you're like, I'm That's not actually helpful that you're going to be there. There's other people who will be there too, I promise. We want to be a church, though, that bears the fruit of allowing green fruit, including in ourselves, to be on the vine. Amen? Okay. Paul and Alyssa in this week's, uh, Alyssa Frisbee and Paul Jossen host our podcast that Emily Klaus talked about a minute ago, our communications director. 
And uh, they, honestly, this, this season, I really would encourage you, I don't care if you're in high school or you're um, uh, empty nester or whatever stage of life you're in, I'd encourage you to check it out and listen to it. Stop provoking. It really is good content. But as they were talking uh, this week uh, on the podcast and I was listening to it, they used an illustration that I'm going to steal because stealing illustrations is like 90% of what a pastor does week to week. Um, kind of a joke. But they use an illustration there to describe what we can dis- uh, construct. And they essentially use this, that, that we can either make a fortress made of bricks with our faith. In other words, all our beliefs help us create this large brick fortress. And guess what? It gives us the ability to have a sense of intellectual security and comfort. We know who's in and who's out. We, we feel safe that we can oppose others if we need to, and we can defend our own beliefs. But the moment that we deconstruct, the moment that we get a call from a doctor, or our sister stops talking to us, or our child goes off the rails, our experience and our beliefs don't always match up. But the Bible says, train a child up in the way they should go, and they won't depart. I swear I did that, and now my child won't talk to me. These are legitimate questions that Jesus invites us into going deeper. But if our goal is to construct a fortress so we can have a sense of intellectual security and confidence and even win arguments with other people and draw lines, then we're missing what Jesus is inviting us to in our spiritual journey. Paul and Alyssa, instead, they spell out that our faith journey is far more like a brick road It's a process, and hopefully there is progress. It's accessible. If you have a moment in your life where you have a a spiritual journey that's a brick road made up of all your beliefs, and there's all of a sudden something that happens that rips out a chunk of those beliefs, and you don't know what to do, and the bricks are nowhere to be found, and there's just a hole in the road, you just drive over that. It might be bumpy, and you might want to fix it, But even if you don't, part of the nature of a road is that it can be continually in construction mode. There's probably something there, isn't there, for the city, all right? If you're in the room and you work for the city, we see you. (laughs) But, but that our theological frameworks, they can take bricks out and they don't fall apart. Jesus says at the end of this passage, he says, that the reason we construct, we go through this pruning process is so that we bear greater fruit and give God glory. This is uh, verse 7 and 8. Jesus says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Would you read this with me? This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. In a couple verses later, verse 12 and 13, Jesus will tell his disciples this. He says, my command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down my life, to lay down one's life for one's friend. The process of of deconstructing, of uh, analyzing our beliefs is an invitation to ultimately wrestle with why our experience and our beliefs don't always match up and to become more like Jesus. The friends that I referred to, and these are true stories of of guys and girls that I sat next to in seminary class who had full rides, 
who spent a lot of money to be there and sacrifice, but have just walked away from the faith. Anecdotally, I can say those people don't have more love for others. They don't have a greater sense of joy and peace that they're directing someone to that there's more to life than our current circumstance. They're not becoming more like Christ in a way that changes the world around them. Jesus says, it is for my glory that you would bear fruit, that I work in you. So we're going to wrap with this. Um, In Mark 9, and I'm sorry that you guys are out here. Welcome, band. Um, In Mark 9, Jesus is approached by a father whose son, and we can only put ourselves so much in this situation, whose son has had an ailment for a long time. And the father walks up and he pleads with Jesus and says, please, if you can, help my son. And Jesus says, if you can, like, whoa, anything is possible if you believe. And if we pause right there in the story, we think Jesus is maybe criticizing this person for not believing. That you and I, we should believe. That's why good things don't happen in our lives. But the man looks back at Jesus and says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And Jesus heals the man's son. I think what that reveals to us is that Jesus invites us to be honest in our disbelief and trust in his grace in our unknowns. So this morning we're going to wrap. I want to pray for us. But I want to invite you, whether that's inviting you to Alpha or inviting you to invite someone else, that we would be a church that bears this fruit. So we come and we, maybe your friend's not meant for Alpha. That's totally cool. But then go to their backyard and hang out and process life with them. But for you this morning, if you're here, whether you're like me and you're a Christian, but there's experiences that don't line up with your beliefs, big or small, I want to invite you to start the conversation with God, to be honest with him and trust in his grace. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, um, would you hear us as we stand, as we respond, as we worship? Uh, May this space not just be the format that we stand, we worship and we leave, but instead may it be a space in which we engage you as God, your authority, however much we question or are uncomfortable with that even. And then we ask for you to work inside of us to help us resolve conflicts and tensions or to help us sit within them and still love the world as you loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.